0: Housing After Dark is a production of Schaffern Strategies. It is produced and edited by Tina Lee with audio technical assistance and equipment from Amaton. It is currently sponsored by Nobody, but if your organization or company wants to help bring this podcast to an even greater number of dedicated housers in and beyond California, reach on out. I'm your host, Alex Schaffern. Thank you for tuning in and remember that you never have to listen to me speak. You can always just read the transcript. Welcome to another edition of Housing After Dark. I'm your host, Alex Schaffern. Today's guest is one of the most interesting and thoughtful housers in the Bay Area. I've known Gloria Bruce on and off for many years, as she worked her way to becoming the longtime executive director of East Bay Housing Organizations, or EBHO, the largest housing coalition on my side of the Bay. Our relationship, like so many in housing, is both professional and personal. I'm not sure she knows this, but it was a conversation with Gloria during a housing conference street party in Oakland a few years back, which made me realize that I was done with academia and that I needed to be back home working with people like Gloria on a regular basis. I'm proud to say that I'm now a triple member of EBHO. I'm a member, my company is a member, and I'm a member of an organization that is a member, inspired in many ways by her leadership over the years to make EBHO into an organization that supports tenant protections and affordable housing production with equal fervor. Gloria is now Senior Program Officer at the Crankstart Foundation, and this conversation was an opportunity for her to reflect both on her work with EPO and on new housing challenges she's focused on, in particular, the persistent divide between two sides of the housing community, those focused on homelessness and the unhoused, and those focused on the rest of the housing system. I hope you enjoy this conversation with someone who is an esteemed colleague, a friend, and a neighbor, and somebody always worth talking housing with, day or night. All right. Gloria Bruce, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Alex. Excited to be here.
0: This is really exciting. This is the first ever personally in-person recording of Housing After Dark. Um, It's also the first ever recording of the podcast while it's actually dark outside. So thanks to Daylight Savings Time, uh, we're actually going to talk about housing in a house uh, live after dark. It's really good to have you.
1: Good to be here, and that is very it's very appropriate in a house after dark.
0: So let's start with now, which has become uh, a tradition. I think this will be either episode seven or episode eight. Uh, don't make me do the math. Um, which is to tell your story of your journey to become a houser. Which I realize, actually, I don't actually know, despite the fact that you and I have known each other on and off for almost two decades. So how did you get to this point and become a houser? Now for almost two decades i think
1: sure i am i'm hung up a little bit on the almost two decades alex how do we really have that many years in our lives on and <laughs> that we've known each other for two decades but i think you are right um uh, and i i like to talk about my housing journey and i like to hear about other people's journey into housing because people come to it from so many different paths i don't think there are too many people who when they're a kid they're like I want to be a Hauser when I grow up. And I'm no exception, um, but I did, when I was younger, want to be an architect when I grew up. Ah. And so there's the roots there, to the extent that I even made myself a T-square and was an architect for Halloween in like fifth grade. I was that kind of kid. Um, Fast forward many years, and I did my undergraduate degree in history, because that's just what I what I picked, but focused on U.S. history and on
0: that makes two of us.
1: Oh, okay. Well, there, well, there you go. There you go. And you know, based on the fact that I was studying what at the time we called African American history um, and women's studies, there was just a lot about the roots of inequity that really interested me. And I was also volunteering um, in public housing projects in Boston. When I was an undergraduate, and just really was thinking, always thinking about how did this place come to be how it is, what can we do to make it different for the people who live here in the way that works for them? So eventually, through a couple of twists and turns, uh, found myself years later deciding, okay, I'm going to pursue that childhood dream of becoming an architect, and I took a, I took an intensive summer course meant for sort of postgraduate people to say, do you want to be an architect? And I took this, I don't know, probably six or eight week course at the University of Maryland. That's where I'm from, Maryland, right outside of DC. And I came out of that course thinking, wow, I really don't want to be an architect. And the main reasons why, and I think it may have just been a function of, the people in that class and who was teaching it is that it was shockingly so focused on buildings and not on the people who occupied those buildings or on the spaces or cities around those buildings. And as much as I love, you know, beautiful structures and public spaces and the idea of creating those for people, um, the people part was missing. But I had an excellent TA in that course who introduced me to some readings um, about new new urbanism, actually, of all things, and I kind of came out of that thinking, huh? There's some interesting interdisciplinary stuff that goes beyond the building, and actually, it was that same teaching assistant who asked me, "Have you ever heard of city planning?" as a field. I had not. <laughs> and then I started reading and, you know, got the bug. Uh, so several years later, I ended up going to graduate school for city planning at UC Berkeley. Um, so my alma mater is Department of City and Regional Planning, DCRP.
0: We'll talk about the Catherine Bauer Worcester uh, statue in the library at some point again. It was a big hit from the Kate Hartley talk, so I'm glad we're bringing DCRP back. I recall
1: that. I recall that. Not to go down a DCRP rabbit hole, but I think there are many of us um, who came through the the barren gray walls of Worcester Hall, (laughs) the halls of Worcester Hall at some point. Um, And I was lucky enough when I was in that graduate program to be enrolled in a fellowship uh, funded by HUD um, that was for students from underrepresented backgrounds to go and work at various community organizations. And that's how I first landed at a couple of community spaces including East Bay Housing Organizations, which we'll talk about later. I was not seeking out housing, but housing found me through that fellowship which helped to pay my way through grad school. And I thought, wow housing, this uh, this little known obscure area that affects everybody, but that nobody talks about. Keep in mind, this was 2004, 2005. And at the time, housing was an obscure area that people didn't talk about in the news or in the public sphere, at least not as much. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is everything. This is like the theory of everything on racism and injustice and environment and education, so many other things. And I kind of got hooked and have never looked back since then.
0: So I'm excited to at some point come back to this, I think both at the end of this talk and I think it, ultimately in a future podcast about how we get into housing. I think too many of us find or have to find our way here through a really long and circuitous pathway. Um, shout out and you know, gratitude to the architects and that it is at least the one, even if it's not the way that many of us ultimately end up doing housing because it's not the specific skill set that we have. I'm also wouldn't be I would be a terrible housing lawyer, just like I would be a terrible housing architect and a terrible housing finance person and terrible at most of the skills of housing, um, which is, I guess, why I have a podcast. But it just, yeah, it's a very secure it is pathway. And I think that it, I would I, I've dreamed and I wrote about in the road to resegregation, just different ways that we could learn more about this in an earlier pathway and um, those of you all can't see, we actually have a special guest here, uh, Theo Sider Bruce, who is the associate producer of this particular episode, uh, and and also Gloria's eldest child. And I just dream about, you know, ways in which him and future generations can have opportunities to sort of find their way to housing in that broad way that I think both you and I approach the subject, that's very human-centered, that appreciates design and policy and finance and all the thing and labor and materials that go into housing uh, and find our way there I mean, at least a little bit quicker or a little bit without having to go through a securitist pathway.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Sometimes it's the circuitous, circuitous pathways that bring us to you know different conclusions and different perspectives that are really exciting. But I think if you know if by having these conversations we can convince my son Theo or other people like, hey, this housing thing is something I want to do. I'm all all for that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think at least one benefit is that many of us who have found our way through that pathway know that we're here for a good reason. Yeah. Um, and it helps us through the difficult times. Um, but. It's a. This is a good reflective point, because part of this episode uh, is about you having a chance to reflect back on what's been a pretty amazing and substantial career. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction, you know, Gloria was a longtime executive director of East Bay Housing Organizations, where I'm proud to be a triple member. I'm a member myself. My company's a member. I'm a member of an organization that's a member of EBHO. Um, very excited about being able to be here and be grounded. And we wanted to sit down and just take a chance to look back at some of the things that have happened over time and to talk a little bit about uh, where Gloria sees housing going into the future. So let's ground ourselves back in, in EBHO. You were the executive director, I believe, for seven years, part of the organization for 12. And the organization in the housing space has evolved a lot over that time, even if at times it doesn't seem like we've evolved as much maybe as we could have. And so I just wanted to start with, you know, what for you are some of the big evolutions that did happen during the time that you were there? Um, I know I want to talk about tenants' rights at some point, but let's just start with the more open-ended version.
1: Sure. That sounds good. I mean, obviously, East Bay Housing Organizations, or EBHO for short, such a lovely acronym that flows right off the tongue, but, you know, that's that's what it is. Um, it's it's obviously a huge part of my life professionally and personally, having, having come out of working there for 12 years. And the community that I found at EBO, I I think will be hard to, to replicate, um, in the rest of my professional life, such an amazing diverse group of folks coming together for housing justice. And I started not, not really knowing how I would find my place in that community. As I mentioned earlier, my first encounter with EBO was through this internship fellowship that I did in graduate school. And this was several executive directors ago. Um, where I thought, wow, this looks like this looks like an interesting area to explore. But I really didn't know it. the first thing about affordable housing, which is EBHO's um, focus, is affordable housing specifically. And I I didn't really know how to find my place in it, but I started learning. And a few years later, after a couple other jobs, got hired um, to be at EBHO by previous executive director Amy Fishman, who, Alex, I know you know well, another huge player in the housing scene and I started by really doing uh, communications and education work. I, I have an education background. I've been a teacher and worked with youth in the past. And so my initial job was really just to essentially spread the gospel about why we need housing and why we need affordable housing. And EBO is very good at that at that task. It's something that the organization has done and its members have done for many years is basically just getting the word out. Why do we need inclusive communities? Why do we need to provide an alternative to the market with housing? Why does housing justice matter? So a lot of our activities and campaigns were focused on answering those questions in a way that was accessible to broad audiences, both those that were likely to be sympathetic um, and those that frankly were not. So put simply, a lot of it was some anti-NIMBY work.
0: So Epo at its origins, I mean this East Bay housing organizations, so it was originally a coalition of what we would think of as affordable housing providers or the nonprofit affordable housing providers. Is that correct?
1: That's right. That's right. It was actually started um, in the 80s and initially as Oakland housing organizations, and it was exactly that. It was a bunch of housing providers who came together um, in in the immediate term to, sh- to solve problems that were happening in Oakland where they needed to come together and grew from that into a coalition of nonprofit housing providers, but eventually... Much broader than that. Faith groups, neighborhood groups, residents of affordable housing, the occasional labor group, other folks who worked in the field. So those architects, again, shout out to the architects. We do love you, even though I didn't join you. Um, title companies, construction companies, contractors, the whole gamut coming together with this this mission.
0: The, I, it's been one of the things that's been really interesting for me as a relatively new consultant is, being part of EBHO and sort of, again, experiencing the network that our other small consultants and folks and other a sm- lot of small businesses, um, many of our for-profit corporations that serve the nonprofit community that are also part of EBHO. It's been a fascinating way to learn and experience and kind of see how we organize and structure our industries because housing is ultimately an industry. Uh, and speak- so speaking of which, I know that one of the challenges that you encountered on the ground at EBHO was this question of tenants' rights, because EBHO originally, was, you know, being an organization of housing providers, were mostly maybe not wanting to call themselves, but were landlords. Yep. Um, and it and didn't necessarily have, or were building an alternative type of housing that was very different from the market rate housing and a lot of the sort of tenant landlord struggles. Uh, but I know that this was a challenge and one that was really sort of central to your time at EPO. So can you tell a little bit about how this issue kind of came about, how you started to see it in your mind, and then where it evolved to over time?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is one of the central both uh, tensions and honestly beautiful challenges of EPO and of similar housing organizations, though I think EPPO is unique and I want to emphasize to your listeners, EBHO is still there, still going strong. As you said, you're a triple member. A little shout
0: out to Lindsay Haddocks, the new EBHO yes, director.
1: Yes, my successor who uh, stepped in a couple months ago. is doing great. Um, so, you know, I dealt with this. My predecessor dealt with this. Lindsay will continue to deal with this tension of um, is this an industry or a movement? And of course, it's not an either or. As you mentioned, simply by the fact that there are entities who are literally constructing and financing and then operating housing. There are inherently industry structures around that. You have to learn the professional lingo. You have to figure out how to get the dollars in the door. You got you have to collaborate with other companies and you, you have to operate like a business in some ways to keep things going. And this work is not for-profit housing work. It is at least in theory, and I do think in practice, mission-driven. And many of the founders of what we now think of as the affordable housing industry in California actually came from pretty progressive and even radical roots and their concept of, hey, we actually need to find a way to let people be stably housed and not just be at the whims of profit-making people or entities. That, that's where it all comes from, right? So there is this constant push and pull between housing as a human right, which I hope is what drives us all and certainly where I tried to center the work at EBHO, and then the very clear realities of housing as a human right in a capitalist society where housing is not provided as a, a right or basic service. Um, and those things came into tension quite often. And what we... What we did, working with our nonprofit partners, who were both developers of housing and landlords, but were somewhat loath to call themselves either because of all the associations that come with those, um, is basically just constantly have that conversation and work that balance. It's why we established and still have a resident and community organizing program within EPO, where we actually did trainings and worked with um, and for. The end user, the residents of those affordable housing properties who could tell us what was life changing and amazing about being able to live in a subsidized property, which more often than not was literally life saving for some of the people that we worked with. That's not hyperbole. We would have people who tell us, like, I would have died on the streets if not for getting this unit or this home, right? And at the same time, those same people would say, I have this problem with management. I'm tired of the elevator not working. I wish our services person was on site more. And those critiques are real and valid. And we had to balance how do we bring those to the developers who are also our members who also pay their dues and help pay our salaries, right? And so it was a, it was a constant back and forth. We didn't always get it right. But I think we eventually got to the point where both the residents and the housing providers understood that what we were trying to do was build connections and grow, grow the pie of affordable housing for everybody. Because at the end of the day, a lot of these issues on site that would come from scarcity or would come from inadequate resources for these housing projects, if we were able through EBHO's advocacy and policy to have more have abundant housing funding, abundant housing being built, so many of these pressures would ultimately go away. And I think we all saw that as a common mission.
0: I, I appreciate that. And it's, it's it's great that you talked about the the specific efforts that you made to incorporate the voices of people that were living in the nonprofit properties, really specifically organizing. It's something I know the Housing California has done, and it seems to be a kind of a common practice now or more common practice now to try to give, intentionally give voice to people who are living in high-tech buildings, living in affordable housing buildings. One thing that's been nice that I've noticed in being part of EBHO, though, is also recently seeing, you know, I see James Van from Oakland Tenants Union, heavily present. What? How, how was it over the time of trying to work with tenants' rights folks that were not, ten, they, were, they were organizing in market rate buildings and this other much larger world of housing that most EBHO members are trying to be the alternative to, but are not in the sense of that they are not the mass alternative. They are that we are still in the minority or they are still in the minority. What was that like over the time of trying to kind of, again, work in what is essentially market rate housing that has a very different set of policy needs like rent control or rent regulation?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think that that was... Definitely an evolution. Even you know, I talked about how our housing providers would want to shy away from the ter- term landlords by the same token. We called our program a resident organizing program, not a tenant organizing program. And that was also intentional because for landlords, the term tenant has baggage. Oh, tenants, they they make trouble. They organize, they don't, you know, they complain, they, you know, and and we need to, of course, strip the the any stigma from that term of tenant, but there's also some intentionality in trying to build these, these bridges going forward. And what we found is that if we could make the argument to the housing developers and nonprofits that relieving pressure in the overall housing market, including market rate housing, would ultimately benefit them and serve their missions theoretically, we should all want to go out of business. We should want EBHO to not need to exist anymore. We shouldn't want to have LIHTC or low-income housing, uh, tax credit housing developers. It would be great if these things didn't have to exist, if our housing market actually functioned to serve everybody who needs a home. We know that it doesn't. And so for every person who is displaced because their landlord And the private market jacks up their rent. For every person who, as one of our residents did, got pneumonia every winter because of mold in her apartment, that's another person who ends up on the wait list for that very limited, precious, affordable housing and increases the pressure on what we do. Um, Not to mention the fact that at the end of the day, whatever the form is of the housing we just want people to be housed in a quality way, right? Whether it's in a, a subsidized building or a non-subsidized building. And I think many of of EBHO's members, of course, felt that uh, really strongly. And so when we went out and started pushing more clearly for things like rent control, anti-displacement policies, um, Just Cause, um, bills like AB 1482, which was really groundbreaking a few years ago for the pandemic. At first, some of our nonprofit developer members were sort of like, not exactly opposed, but they were like, Why? This isn't your core bread and butter. You're here to serve us. And we had to make sure that we were continuing to do the really core nitty gritty advocacy issues that matter to them, but saying, this is a matter of housing justice. Can we go back to that call to housing as a human right? It does not mean that every position we took was welcomed with open open arms, but it did mean that eventually most of the organizations came along with us when we were endorsing statewide measures um, to end Costa-Hawkins or doing things like that. I think most people came along. And then then honestly, there was some self-screening with our members. EBHO does not at least as of this recording, does not have for-profit affordable housing entities in our membership. That's not an intentional block. I never said, you know, if you're a for-profit entity, we don't want you. But to be perfectly honest, there are organizations that are just like, yeah, y'all are a little too progressive, a little too pro-tenant. I don't really want to join as a member. And that's completely fine. We were really clear about our values. One of them being people over profit, housing for people first. And our membership page says, here are our six values. If you espouse these values, you're welcome to be a member. If these values like housing for people first make you uncomfortable, you may want to find another affiliation.
0: I'm uh, currently trying to do some work to set up a countywide housing coalition in another county um, and inspired in some ways inspired by some of the, the work that I've seen that you've done in EPO and other coalitions. And this this is one of the thorniest challenges right is that how do you get people to work together when especially on issues in which they don't have full agreement can you build a coalition in which people agree on core values and 80 percent of the things and then they just agree to disagree on certain things and allow allow the organization and allow staff and allow members to advocate for certain things in their name, even if they're not fully on board. How I'm just kind of curious, sort of in this process, what did you find when working with, let's say, some of your more influential or more powerful members that were a bit reluctant? Did you, I mean, was it, did, did you develop ways of either trying to convince them or just learning when you can sort of, you're not going to win that battle and walk away? Like over time, how, how did you figure out how to, to, that needle, to walk that line, while still nudging them forward. I think, you know, not that you're a nudge or that I'm a nudge. Right. But one of the things I've always been impressed with you is, again, is this ability that you've had, I feel like, to continue to press forward with a, as a fairly big tent in a very difficult set of circumstances. And what was the the secret sauce. Not that I, you would probably ever argue that you were successful all the time, but no. <laughs> But it's like also that's also what I'm kind of curious. Like, yeah. how were you able to do it, and also sometimes take the L's and
1: yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a great it's a great question, and and one that I, I considered the the fundamental question of my job, and that you know that I I still do, even though I'm in a, I'm in a different space in the housing world. And yeah, you you do sometimes take the losses, right? And then you decide which wins are the most important which which losses are the ones that we can't bear and which ones can we so you know kind of goes back to that self screening question of um you know if i had an individual member who called and was yelling at me because she didn't like something we had done on a local rental housing ordinance, but it was just that one member, and I would hear her out. And at the end of the day, she eventually decided, you know, EPO isn't the place for me as a private market rate landlord, as an individual, you know, and I was kind of sorry to see her go because it wasn't a perspective that we had a lot of. But I wasn't gonna like change the entire trajectory of the ship for the, this one private market landlord who didn't like some of the some of the policies that we were espousing. And I think it's I you know you brought it back to this issue of values and agreeing eighty percent of the time. I think in any coalition, in any membership group, you've got to ground it back at the values. There is no way that a collection of several hundred people and organizations isn't going to agree on everything. Um, and we can fight it out. We can have those we can have those fights. There's also a constant tension between. Does staff make the call? Do members make the call? And sometimes we got that right, and sometimes I think we, you know, didn't. Um, or we're constantly figuring that one out. Um, I think one of the ways that I did it, I have always been of the mindset that you catch more flies with honey. That is my that's my mo. It's not everybody's mo, which is fine. But I usually found that if I showed up with openness with respect and courtesy and listened, then that would go a long way. I also found that showing up and doing the work goes a really long way. I know that sounds really obvious, Alex, but I would always be surprised by how many leaders or partners out there just wouldn't answer an email. Like I, I feel like if you answer people's emails, <laughs> it's amazing how much goodwill that generates, you know, it's basic. But like, someone's pissed at me, and they call me, and they answer my email. Like, I'm gonna call them back, and just you know. I, so, it's it's all comes down to relationships, it's the fundamentals of community organizing, right? Building those relationships, listening to people, pushing back when I really felt that they were not aligned with values. Sometimes giving in, sometimes not. It's not. It's no magic to it. No secret sauce, really.
0: Did you feel like you got caught at times? in some of the zero-sum pol- game politics, because I feel like that's the other challenge in this space, is, is you know, EBO has never stopped. I don't see it ever stop advocating for funding for affordable housing and some of the basics that the housing organizations want. And the challenge is, is that I want EBHO to be able to advocate successfully on every single part of the housing element because there's nobody else to advocate. We don't have another housing coalition in the East Bay. Can't you know, can we communicate, hey, we'll advocate for that, but we're also gonna advocate for these other things? And if those things don't float your boat, that's fine. You don't have to show up. But don't please don't try to block it. Because that, to me, is that that zero-sum politics yeah. has been really challenging. Is that something that you ran into? Oh,
1: for sure, for sure. And I, I think it's like the more um, zoomed into the hyper-local level and the more caught up in interpersonal politics and relationships, the harder that would become. And so I think in Oakland, we, could a- we actually ran into that quite a bit. And we would actually have battles about should EBHO be fighting for funding for permanent affordable housing or for preservation of properties at risk of displacement or for immediate relief for people who are are unhoused? And the fact that that's an or – to me, it was always crazy. <laughs> like, like clearly, we need both. I mean, and, and I, I say that. It's easy for me to say that now in this chair, not having that job anymore. And when you are in the job and you are faced with a budget battle and you have some of your constituents, your members, saying, we fought for this particular pot of money. We feel really strongly about this particular pot of money. Gloria, you are, quote-unquote, giving it away to another group. That kind of talk always made my blood boil a little bit, because folks, it's not our money. First of all, this is all public money. So it belongs to all of us. Secondly, just because we fought for or won a particular bond or ballot measure, and we're proud of that, and we helped design the program that does not make it ours. Um, the purpose is for the people. And on a practical matter, like, yeah, sometimes it really sucked when you worked really hard for something, and then another political constituency would would come and chip away at that thing you worked hard at. Um, so it was difficult i will say that it's difficult but you just you just have to keep grounded on those values and and sometimes it's going to be ugly um and sometimes you're going to be able to win back the people who think that way by just saying you know what i'm going to i'm going to keep making the argument i'm making which is that we're for all kinds of housing and this this housing is for the people
0: i'm wondering did you one of the things that i've also enjoyed in our conversations and you've even said it now is this acknowledgement in many ways that affordable housing is an industry we don't like to use the i word so many people are mission driven most of us could make more money doing something else um it's clearly important to us but some of the yeah i think some of the behavior or some of the you know that you're talking about to me, it's just sort of classic industry. It's what industries do. You learn this is the you know this is your industry, and you have got to learn to fight for the industry. And um, there are either competitions, other industries that are trying to take your stuff, and and it, it's normal to me. Actually, I'm no, I no longer. I guess maybe I'm extremely middle aged, and so I no longer have the blinders on that I think I maybe did when I was younger and an activist about, you know, good and bad and industry versus non-industry. We're just folks making a living, especially in the yeah. professional side, which you and I, again, you know, yeah, I go totally. to IBO things and I go to IBO calls and everybody there is paid to be there. Um, was that a challenge for you at times of getting people to kind of accept the, na- the you know, that hey, this is an industry and we are in, in some ways an industry organization.
1: Yeah, I, I think I really came to, in the 12 years that I was there, I really evolved in my thinking to not just with Ebba, with it, but with everything else, just being like, be transparent about who you are and what you represent and how far you can go at the moment and how far you really can't. And absolutely, there are components of this work that are industry-led, industry-focused, and and not even apologetic about that, nor do I think apologetic is even the right term. As you said, there's a bunch of professionals, they care about this work, but they are professionals making a living doing this work. And, you know, you said a lot of us can make more money doing something else. Sure, but some of us are actually compensated just fine um, for, for what we do and have built up a lot of professional credibility and some savings and our homeowners. And that's a good thing. I would. I want people to be able to make a living as a Hauser and have a comfortable life. My counterpoint to that is, and the people who are resident services coordinators and case managers and housing organizers, they should also be able to climb that ladder and make a good salary and 401k. And right now there's a pretty big gap between those frontline and services positions and the more quote unquote professionalized, they're all professional positions, but you know what I'm saying. Um, And at the same time, I think I would be really clear with my team about who EBHO was we were not a tenant driven movement organization. We were a staffed organization of advocates that had members who were professionals in the field. And I started having the practice when I would hire someone where before I would finalize the offer, I'd take them out to coffee and I'd say, I love you. You seem great. Want to be really clear? If what you need to be doing is chaining yourself to the podium of city council, this may not be the organization for you. We are a progressive organization. We are not a radical organization. And we will keep pushing, but we're pushing within a system. We are not necessarily dragging down that system. And you have to decide whether that's an okay role. And I think eventually I formed a team that was comfortable with that pushing the system from within the system kind of stance.
0: That's a, you know, if anybody out there is a manager or in my case, a board chair hiring some executive directors, that conversation of setting is how you set people up to succeed. It doesn't matter what the job is. It's just really making sure people are coming in eyes wide open. And I think so many people come into positions and opportunities, not really understanding what is there and then are not able to to be in a position to succeed. So if we can continue on this kind of, education and learning theme that seems sure. to be our underlying thing. So first we talked about the things you learned and that you maybe Ebho learned during your time. And now we- when we previewed this conversation, you immediately wanted to talk about one of the main things that you're learning in your current role, um, which is also something that I am learning in my current role, which is not just about homelessness and the unhoused and that and the kind of ongoing tragedy that's happening on our streets, but just how separate the homelessness and housing worlds are. Um, and if I think about it, again, I've seen it many times from folks like Tamika Moss uh, and other leaders who at housing conferences are constantly reminding us that housing and homelessness are not separate issues, they're the same issue. But it is a legitimate, the divide is real. It's real. Yeah. And so, yeah, What? tell me a little bit about this journey that you're taking in your current work with Crankstart into the, the world, deeper into the world of homelessness policy. And what have you learned about the divide? Again, we know it's real. So how is it real? And, and what are the ways that you're seeing perhaps that we're going to start to undo it?
1: Totally. I, I'm so glad you asked this question. And first, just for the housers or non-housers who might be listening, let me just say, people in the housing industry love to think that we have the wonkiest and the hardest and the most technical field. I'm here to tell you that serving unhoused people is can be just as wonky and technical and difficult. It's all dif- difficult folks, we all have our rabbit holes and we, we love our particular rabbit hole, but it can be really hard to get out of our particular rabbit hole and learn a whole new area. And I think part of the issue is that as we discussed before, through necessity, these have become very professionalized areas. And so it makes sense. We have people who specialize in really particular things. And then it's hard to jump from that to say, well, I know how to structure a bond deal to get affordable housing built. That is a very different knowledge set that takes years to accumulate. And it's a very different knowledge set from how do I... Talk to someone who's been unhoused for ten years and convince them to come inside to this permanent supportive housing unit and to let go of some behaviors that serve them on the street and that are not going to serve them now that they're living indoors. Those are really different skill sets. Those are both incredibly important skill sets, but of course they're different. So as these fields have professionalized, they've they've drawn apart. And in my current role, I work as a senior program officer at Crankstart Foundation, which is a family foundation in San Francisco. We do a lot of grant making on homelessness issues as well as on housing. And I'm really excited to be able to work on and integrate both. Because as you said, Alex, it's the same problem. It's literally in the name, right, of homelessness. (laughs) Um, And what has been really interesting is to see kind of the different trajectories that bring people into homelessness response versus affordable housing. If I were to grossly overgeneralize, I would say, granted, a lot of people come to this work through direct lived experience and kind of come in that way. And then other people come through it through a variety of experiences or professional interests. In the affordable housing industry, there tend to be people with a lot of backgrounds in, as we discussed, architecture, policy, um, business, real estate, in homelessness response, it's more common to be social work, um, substance use recovery, uh, th- things you know, things of that nature. So people coming from just really different disciplines, quite often, and speaking different languages. But I think there's also something deeper, which is that I think many of us do this work because when we walk around Oakland and we see people living and not thriving outdoors. We are moved by that. We know it's not okay. And we may often feel pretty hopeless and helpless about it. And I personally think it can be easier to focus on the upstream policy than to look at the really hard stuff that's happening right in front of us. And I do think at EPO sometimes we would have those fights where people would say to us, "EPO, what are you doing on homelessness? And we would say, well, we're building affordable housing. That's the ultimate end to homelessness. That's the ultimate solution. Of course it is. And it is right for EPO to focus on that. At the same time, I think there was a little bit of hesitance, even on my part, to engage with the really hard realities of people suffering today on the street. Um, At Crankstart, I am working with organizations who are taking on that whole spectrum and hoping to make some more connections there. I think a lot of people fundamentally understand the linkages, but I think there is a lot more to be done, especially when you're talking about substance use recovery, mental health, physical health, community supports. Those things need to be integrated much more fully into the affordable and supportive housing conversation. I think there are a lot of people who are doing that very consciously. But what I have heard from practitioners in the supportive housing field, so supportive housing being, you know, housing for very low-income people, formerly unhoused people that also have services attached, is that the housing organizations, Mercy, TNDC, RCD, many others, they are set up to provide housing, and too often the funding structures allow the services to be almost an afterthought or an add-on, and housers have said to me, we don't want it to be this way, it is not working. Like we are experts in building housing. And then you bring people with extremely high needs, move them indoors, and they're not thriving right away. They are searching for other solutions. And that's where I get the hope is that the houses are like, we got to come together on this. So that's what I'm trying to work on.
0: Well, it's great. And I, I love, you know, so much of my writing now. And I, one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast is really to get us as professional housers to really sort of see the truth of our full industry and all of these pieces and to really see the system as it is and not always as it wants to be. I think sometimes both on this housing and homelessness divide um, and on the affordable versus market rate divide and are we, you know, a lot of times I think people are caught up in the the definition of the space as they dream that it would be and Mm. not in the live reality and and it's easy to say oh there's no division between housing and homelessness well Mm. empirically there is yeah and you're right the trainings whether you came from a social work program or a law program or policy program or you went to real estate school and yeah chances are you didn't do a dual degree and it's like hey how do you work within this system totally that we have and again recognize in some ways that some of the divisions aren't necessarily yeah maybe somebody's reproducing these divisions but that's what they inherited that's how they were trained um and that's the limit of what they or maybe it's just the limit of their knowledge and what they can do on a day-to-day basis because we can't all do these things
1: yeah that's right nobody nobody can do it all and no one should be expected to do it all so it's not about oh let's all become experts in each other's thing right that's not even practical but it's recognize where your thing may have some limitations and who else do you need to partner with to, to bring
0: in the other things that you need. Is there anything that you're seeing out there in terms of kind of either bridging those gaps or, or weaving together or creating collaborations that are making a difference? Something that that is filling, again, filling you with with the hope that, okay, at least in a few instances, people are really starting to see this and make some substantive changes in terms of how we operate.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think some of it comes from the work of a lot of organizations, including EBO, including Housing California with its Residents United program, including a great organization I've started to work with in San Francisco called DISH, that are organizations that are, first and foremost, in their mission, housing-focused, but have brought in that resident-centered view and have residents actively involved in the governance and organizing and policy of the organization so that you can't just wonkify it all the time. You actually have people telling you this housing is great and I also need XYZ if I'm really going to thrive. So I think those resident center programs have been really impactful uh, in that work. I also think that a common area of effort for, to oversimplify, housing developers and homeless services providers is that we all are united in the idea, not even in the idea, the truth, that housing is the fundamental issue. I spent many years on the board of Alameda County's Homelessness Collective Impact Organization, Everyone Home, and I was unusual in that group because most of the people on that board ran domestic violence shelters or they uh, oversaw programs um, to assess people who are unhoused. And I was the housing policy wonk. But every single one of those people, even if they were providing DV services or providing substance use ser- services, they were all like, oh, yeah, it's housing, stupid. They they all knew that, even though their job wasn't necessarily building the affordable housing. And I think that is a, that's a powerful area to build commonality. I also think that now... Um, I know I'm not supposed to to name the city across the bay, um, that whose initials are SF, but as I'm seeing what's happening in that other city, as well as in our town, where there is an increasing effort to criminalize and stigmatize people who are living on the streets, affordable housers and homeless services providers are united in their desire to stop and reverse that.
0: Just for future guests and listeners, you are allowed to talk about San Francisco on this podcast. You're just not allowed to center San Francisco in any way, shape, or form in California's housing politics. That's the only thing that's not allowed. Okay. But we do love the city of my birth. It's also the city where my great grandfather died and the city where my mother grew up. Uh so we do love it. Um, you know, go niners, uh go giants, but um, and go dubs. So which you you know, maybe should still be still conversation. So actually one last question on this question of homelessness in the unhoused, and I'm really grateful for you coming and talking. It's a, it's a subject that, you know, anybody who lives next to Mosswood Park thinks about all the time. Um, And it's something that Tina Lee, shout out to my producer has been nudging me to do more on. And I've been trying to figure out how to start this conversation. And I'm hoping this is just, you are the first of many guests and the first of many conversations. It's actually one of the things that inspired the podcast was I I knew there was a limit to what I could write in the substack on my own. And I needed to start having conversations with people who knew a lot of things that I didn't know. And this was one of the main subjects that, that this is about. So I really appreciate you being the first guest to come and really center uh, this issue. Uh, you mentioned actually temporary housing and, and mm-hmm. like thinking about it as housing. And I know that that's been an issue that I've written about and it's something that's been a cause of tension Within the housing and the unhoused community, is to what degree, you know, what does housing first really mean? And what's the role of shelter or temporary solutions? Has your thinking about temporary housing evolved over the last uh, year or so of digging in in this new way?
1: Yeah. And I, I wouldn't say it's even so much that my thinking has evolved as that it's clarified. Um, I think I was already and always of the view that I, I, I don't frankly think it's productive. For advocates of permanent housing to just say no to temporary housing. And I say that as someone who I am very lucky to be permanently housed. I am a homeowner that is incredible privilege. So I speak knowing that I'm not speaking from the perspective of someone who is living outdoors right now and who may have a different perspective. And you and I live near a beautiful park in North Oakland that has been a home to varying populations of people for the last few years. There are people living in tents in that park. It's not safe for them. It's not safe for us. It's just like not a great situation. And to say to those folks, maybe in five years, there'll be a Lytech building 20 miles from here that you can apply to and get a, a unit in. I mean, come on. We ha- we have to have a better answer than that um, in the interim. So I do think there is a role for interim housing. I think people are right to be concerned that political forces might be over-investing in shelter and interim housing to essentially make the problem of homelessness invisible and then, great, we can't see those folks anymore so let's not worry about permanently housing them. That is a live worry and I think it is a legitimate worry. And when I hear people do things like, uh, you know, compare the city that must not be centered, San Francisco, to New York and say, well, why New York doesn't have the homelessness problem that San Francisco does? Of course it does. It also has a right to shelter law, which means most of those folks are indoors. They are still unhoused. They are still experiencing homelessness and terrible outcomes. You just can't see as many of them. Is that truly better? It changes the nature of the problem. I'm I'm quoting Greg Col- Colburn here, I think. It changes the nature of the problem. It doesn't solve the problem, right? So I think that is a legitimate concern. And I think interim housing has a place. So we got to figure out how do we resource all of it? That, that's my question.
0: I mean, and that's a great sort of way in many ways to end because this fear of certain housing solutions because of the way that they can be misused by people in power that applies to every single housing totally. solution that is any ever policy exists, intervention any ever policy intervention that exists. And that's just, you know, again, if we, if we're always afraid, exclusively afraid of this sort of negative externalities as opposed to doing it. And then consciously knowing that there will be these negative externalities or other people will assume that people will sadly do the worst with it, and figure out ways to prevent that from happening. Uh, I think that's really critical. I think about this not just for temporary housing, uh, but for things like homeownership, which is, in my opinion, and you can read about it in the Substack from last year, just a form of resident-controlled housing mm-hmm. um, which I'm just a huge believer in which I'm gl- really glad that you centered um, again all of these things can and have been used for wonderful things and can and have been used for terrible things by people in positions of power and idea I, yeah, can't stop us from from having these solutions I also I struggle with any housing solution that it feels like flies in the face of what the rest of many uh, of us need on a day-to-day basis we sure. all one of the things that we, we, we have the luxury of both permanent housing and then temporary housing whenever we need it. Mm. Um, and we maybe, you know, I've been fortunate to mostly not need temporary housing because of crisis, but I've been divorced. I've had, you know, situations where I've had to, to move from where I'm moving and in quick ways. Um, temporary housing is just a really fundamental part of human existence and, and has been since we started organizing ourselves in tribes and. And it will never go away. And just integrating it into our planning, integrating it into our housing system, making it okay and valorizing it, again, not in the same way as we valorize permanent housing, but as a real kind of fundamental part of the system and not a sign that the system is somehow inherently wrong. That doesn't mean warehousing poor people in inadequate, unsafe shelters that they don't want to be in and nobody would want to be in. It's finding ways to do this in a way that is safe and legitimate.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's right. And that's what we should all focus on and understand that there's a range of interventions that are gonna work for, for different people. It's almost as if not everybody experiencing housing security is is a monolith. And it's almost as if things aren't 100% good or 100% bad. It's almost as if the circumstances change depending on people's needs. And you know if we really look at it, a tent is is temporary housing as well that may be needed very much by somebody at a particular time. And that may in a particular moment be preferable to living in a congregate shelter with a bunch of folks you don't know who might be ill who might you know you just like i understand there's there's a lot of nuance here and that's why we have to provide a range of options so that was really what my time at ebho was about it's what my time now at crankstar is about is um, grounding in values But beyond that, not being dogmatic about the type of housing, because you've talked really well and written really well. um, And I really appreciated your interview with uh, Courtney Welch about the housing life cycle. We need different things at different parts parts in our lives. And that's true for all of us, regardless of our income or our our background.
0: Well, that is a great way to end. Gloria Bruce, thank you very much. Um, And thank you to all our listeners here at Housing After Dark. We'll see you next time. Thanks so
1: much, Alex.